This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, joining you again from my home office. Yes, Penn community continues to social distance in every way we can. Fortunately, we're all staying safe thanks to our colleagues on campus, the heroes keeping essential life-saving operations running, not to mention the tech we're using to connect with each other. And speaking of connecting, you can reach us through our Twiddle handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. Let us know what you're thinking and what you want to know. One of the things I've been thinking about is empathy, the appalling lack of it at times, and the question of what could happen if we brought more of it to bear on the work we do and how we interact with each other. Fortunately, today's guest is just the person to help us harness the power of empathy and trust to make work a place where we move past inclusion to belonging and release, as she so beautifully wrote, the energy of possibility in others. Frances Fry is the co-author of Unleashed, the Apologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. She's an agent of profound change and a professor at Harvard Business School. Her research investigates how leaders create the conditions for people and organizations to thrive together through strategy, operations, and culture. Her success stories include Uber, WeWork, and Harvard, where she helped to completely transform their business school's experience for women in just one year, which is truly amazing. She gave us the brilliant TED Talk on how to build and rebuild trust, and also happens to be a Penn alumna who earned her PhD in operations and information management here at Wharton. Francis, thank you so much for joining us here on Women at Work. Oh, I love being here with you, Laura. Thanks for the invitation. So, Francis, I gobbled up the book this weekend. I couldn't put it down. And what surprised me wasn't that, you know, a Wharton alumna and a Harvard business professor was giving me this great tool for leadership, but how deeply human it was and how moved I was by it. There was a message that came out early in it that we should have radical respect for the experience of others and take exquisite care of others. I was, I've never heard those words used in a business context before. How did you get there? Oh, it's such a great question. So the, um, if I can give you the long version, I'm going to go back to when I was at Wharton. So okay. when I was at Wharton and I was in the OPM department, uh, Operations and Information Management, and I was really interested in how to perfect operations. And then I started studying service operations and that's operations where customers have a role in it. And then I understood, oh my gosh, everything I learned about modeling, I could optimize all of this if it weren't for the pesky people. Like Those inconvenient customers. If it weren't for the people, man, we could optimize everything. And then I realized the people are led. And so then started becoming really fascinated with what are the practices that bring out the best in other people. And there's no question, like if I asked you for the moments in your life where you were at your best, I, someone was taking exquisite care of you. It, it's so true. As I read it, I thought about how rare it was, but how potent it was when that happened. 
Um, it brought back memories of particular times, like when my three-year-old was in the hospital with pneumonia and I had to go on a business trip and the president of the university I worked for stood in for me and called me and said, I don't want you to worry. We're going to make you proud. How many people do that? But that was like one of those moments where I felt it. And, you know, 15 years later, have I forgotten it? No. Yeah. And that's the, and so we, and Anne and I wrote this together and Anne and I are married. We're co-authors. This is our second book. And um, uh, we try to take exquisite care of one another uh, as well. And so it really is everything that we learned, we tried to make it in as much of a how-to book as possible, but also giving the roots of where it all came from. It was very funny to read the little footnotes in there that were kind of, it felt like this um, acknowledgement to one another of where your differences emerge, how you've learned about them in each other. Um, and also as for the reader to understand that we could relate to either one of you in that process, depending on and, where we fought, fall on that arc. And I think that really helps because we, um, I'm like, I'm like an exuberant puppy and <laughs> And that's like awesome for some people and totally not for others. Uh, Anne has much more breadth than I do, but it really is nice that people can turn to one or the, or the other. I'm super direct and will take, uh, will we'll take you on the narrative. It's when you see beautiful words, they're hers. <laughs> I love the beautiful words then about one of us wears men's clothes and <laughs> shoes that ask nothing of us. Is that just the best? Was that her? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's a, a yeah, describing it, me because her shoes totally ask something of her. <laughs> <laughs> so it, again, that was a, a way of helping us understand you, but with, I thought, a very loving reflection back. Yeah. Yes. So speaking of that kind of, those differences between us, the, the kind of opposite ends of ourselves and of each other. Uh, one of the important framings is the, in the book is how we learn to become present so that we can become absent. Um, because it's not just about how to be empathetic and kind and build trust about why that's such an essential business strategy. So help me understand what are the challenges first in being present? Yeah, and I think the first challenge in being present is that we have so many demands on us and we're, we're thinking about so many things and we were somehow taught that multitasking was good. It's, um, it's, and I think women were like particularly sold that line. Like, oh, <laughs> here's the difference between men and women. Women can multitask. That's like what you do if you wanna hold women back. That's like not, multitasking isn't a great idea. And so the best way to be present in front of someone is to be present. <laughs> in front of someone. And so you and I are having this conversation. We also can see each other. Neither of us is looking down and also on our, uh, on some technology. And so I think the, the first thing is to just make the decision to be present to people when we're in front of them. And when and, we're not in front of them, go anywhere you want. But, and at the heart of that, it's about respect and being available to them, yes? Yeah, it is. I, the reason I don't totally want to code it in respect is I don't want people to feel so badly about their former selves that they were disrespectful. I think it was uh, whatever, because respect and disrespect sound like active things. I just think people weren't given the secret memo of the unintentional consequences of their multitasking in the presence of others. 
That's a very kind way to put it and an easier way to absorb it. Because as I read that section, I was thinking about the moments where, speaking of multitasking, nobody ever told me to do it, but I feel a perpetual anxiety about all the things I can't get done. And how easy it is when we have those evil devices, which by the way, mine is shut off and not in this room right now. <laughs> um, they pull us in these different directions. And so one part of it, I think, becomes how long do I need to be present in this thing until I've fulfilled my obligation before I move on to the other pressing obligation? And that's not fair to, to you or to either of the places yeah. where you're putting your energy. And so one of the first book that we wrote together, um, its main message was that in order to be great, you have to be bad. Not, not bad for sport, but bad in the service of great. And we really have working moms in our mind, which is that we could line up working moms on a continuum of like, they have it all going on, this one set of them. And they're doing great. Their kids are great. We would joke their roots are done. Like everything, <laughs> yeah, the whole, something like impossible for us to imagine. But you could see the other end of the continuum. And these working moms were one missed handoff away from a catastrophe. Yeah. And the only difference that we could tell is amongst all of these moms are that the ones that had it all going on, they were, they decided what they were going to be great at, probably work and home. And they were super unapologetic about what they were going to be bad at not as good in the PTA, not as good of a sister, daughter. And the other working moms that were one missed handoff away were using their own physical exhaustion as the only binding constraint and trying to be great at everything. It doesn't work. It, in fact, the phrase we ended up with is exhausted mediocrity. Like that's what comes oh, out. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I've lived it. Yeah. And I'm trying hard to stop living it. And it's part of why in the section of the book where you about be ruthless about how you spend your time in that unapologetic um, choice. Who is it that you're not apologizing to? Other people or yourself? Oh, that's great. Um, so for sure, as you ask it, I it, myself is the first one, although I, we might have intended other people, but I, I really like your question. And I think it is the same way we have to trust ourselves before other people can trust us. I think we have to be unapologetic to ourselves first. That's great. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Because um, it, it's a struggle that I think we all have. And as one of those moms on the spectrum, and I see it with my own staff who are younger than I am and in the early stages of parenthood, um, that internal um, push expectation to be everything to everybody um, is a very hard thing to shake. Although, like you said, the people who I see knocking it out of the park definitely know what their priorities are. It's... Uh... It is maybe the most essential choice that we can make. So as we're making essential choices at work about how and where to be present, what should get our attention? Too often it feels like the message we get is that it's your zero inbox, it's the products that you produce, it's not the time you spend with people. How, how should we rank the time we spend, for me, with the people on my team versus the time I'm spending focused externally? Yeah. And I so didn't agree with the first part that people couldn't see me. <laughs> my, I was like, I don't care how big your inbox is. I really don't. So, but um, so he, listen, leadership is about making other people better. Like that's first as a result of our presence, then as a result of our absence. So for whomever you're leading, you have to make them better as a result of your presence. And when you're really good at it, then they can thrive in your absence. 
but they need your presence in the beginning. So I, if, I guess I would say if you're leading them, they require you until you have made them so self-sufficient that they no longer do. It sounds a lot like parenthood. I think parenting is a form of leadership, and it's one that I have gotten better at, but I wasn't very good at in the beginning. <laughs> I still wonder if I'm getting it right. <laughs> but that, that model of ultimately we're trying to help our kids be successful in the world without us. Yeah. Um, so in a very real way, we need our staff to develop in the same way to feel as anchored and supported and loved in order to go out in the world and make great decisions and a great impact. And I, I, I'll take anyone that operates alone, like you can pick the best person in the world. And then I'll take anyone else and give them a team. And I'm sure the team can outperform the individual. So it's also just good sense. So along with good sense, at least the way that I read it, was you talked about how we empower people to be able to do that to be equipped to function well on a team with other people, and even in the largest of organizations. Yet, once again, in a kind of unexpected way, you began with trust and love and belonging. Talk about why that is such an essential beginning and what its ingredients are. Yeah, and so I do think that the foundation of great human interactions and all human interactions start with trust. So if you and I get to a position where we can build trust in one another and whether or not you trust me is my obligation to be super clear. It's my job to be trusted. Uh, and we now know how to set the conditions that if you're not trusting me, I can trace it down to its component part of what's getting in the way. And we also know how to overcome it. So trust is much more actionable today than it was five years ago or 10 years ago, which is super exciting. And, and that's because of the research that have brought insights to this? Yeah. Yeah. So, and so what we have discovered is that like 10 years ago, if we said, you know, build more trust tomorrow, we like, you'd want to take a nap. You'd have no idea how to do it. <laughs> but now we know that the three component parts of trust are authenticity, logic, and empathy, which means you're more likely to trust me if it's the real me with compelling and rigorous logic and that I'm clearly in it for you. And so in, can I test it by yes, trying out please. the inverse? Yes. So what that means is if I'm engaging in dialogue with you and I sound like I'm in it for me, I'm not giving you the real story and I don't have any empathy for how this impacts you, we're not going to get very far. In fact, you only need to be missing one of them and you're not going to get very far. So it's actually you need all three to be trusted and anytime you're not trusted, we can go back and trace it to which one of these three it is. So when I was digging into this section of the book, and, I, and one of the exercises was think back to a time when trust got in the way. And every time I thought about it, it was a time when I was frightened about something, when I felt insecure. And my nervousness was making me like kind of overly protective in a way that I later saw was just so unproductive. Am I alone in this or do no, our anxieties and fears drive us? Well, they do in some instances and our ego drives us in other instances and our desire to be pleasing drives us in others. Like I want to please you so much, I, start, I lose sight of who I am. So I think, but to your point, I, I think that our, our fear is, and anxiety is a really, that's a very potent one. And that can either stop me from being authentic 
or it could stop me from being empathetic. It could stop me from being empathetic because I'm only, I'm only worried about my own safety. And so I just disregard yours. Um, or I have so much anxiety, I'm just going to try to be whatever the right answer is. And that also doesn't sound like a position from which we can lead calmly or with confidence that puts anybody else at ease. Indeed, I'm sure you're not leading in those positions. You may be managing, but you definitely aren't leading. That's a really key difference. So when you, one of the things you wrote about, you have these marvelous checklists in the book, um, tools to <laughs> oh, help those us. Those were super fun to make, so I'm glad they resonated. <laughs> I know, they were fun to read, and they're also really useful to hook into. Good. And Good. Um, one of the ones that really hit me was to check in with what like our primate brains are doing. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about that kind of check-in, and does that tap into the things we were just talking about? Yeah, so I do think that like our bodies and our instincts are like when we're thinking about our own survival, that really did help us, you know, a thousand years ago and 500 years ago, because like survival was the thing. But today we don't need like it's not survival. Our adrenaline that really gets built up, that was to go like, you know, slay the food for dinner. It's not the audience for our talk. It's not going <laughs> to kill us. But the adrenaline rushes are pretty equivalent. So we, it is, I think the language was take back control from your primate brain. It, um, it is to right size these sources of anxiety. I'm not saying that it isn't like super high, but let's right size the implication. It's the consequences are not going to be devastating. So Francis, as we were saying before, there are words that we never get to hear in business discussions like love and belonging. Um, and that being able to put the fear aside, be present with the people who work for us so that we can help them feel supported and safe and enabled. Another term that used, again, that I've never read in a business book was to reveal deep devotion to them. Talk to me about that concept. Yeah. Yeah, so this one is really important, um, which is that once we have a foundation of trust, I think the next level is, can I set the conditions for one other person to achieve their best, like to, to thrive in magnificent ways? And if I, my job was to set the conditions for you to thrive, we know that there are required two things that we do, and the trick is we have to do them simultaneously, and typically our instincts tell us to do one or the other. So okay. it's really, it's the simultaneity in this that matters. And so for me to set the conditions for you to thrive, I need to set high standards. And I think we can tell that's true. Like if I set low standards, very few of us thrive in the presence of low standards. So <laughs> right. we, need, right, we need high standards. Um, but also for me to set the conditions for you to thrive, that is for me to have a role in your thriving, you have to uh, experience my deep devotion to your success. That if I'm devoted to your success and you feel it, and that's like the college president that stood, like you felt that person's devotion. Mm -hmm. And it's not like devotion to, it's, it's like devotion to your success. Like we got you in your absence, take all the time you need. Yes, that's a really important distinction because it wasn't about um, an interpersonal private devotion. No, yeah. It was a devotion to this collective thing that we're trying to make yes. happen. But at the same time, 
it acknowledged that I was a mom with a pressing concern outside of work, and I didn't need to worry that I was going to be penalized yeah. for that. And so I think those are the two things. It's deep devotion to your success and it's high standards. And what we found in practice is that there are some people that can set really high standards, but they just forget to let anyone know that they're devoted to them. <laughs> it's, yeah, all too often. We can name many. But you know, there are just as many people that are so devoted and they so get your context that they insidiously lower the standards. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this a lot. This, and it, the way I learned this is about 10 years ago at HBS, African-American students weren't thriving to the same extent that white students were. And I was looking at my own practices and I was like, oh my gosh, I was cold calling white students more often than black students. I was asking rigorous follow-up questions of white students more than black students. And when I started looking at the patterns and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm deeply devoted and I haven't set high standards. And then I like didn't make that mistake again. Like the kindest form of love, which is why we call it love, is by being devoted and having high standards. Is there any aspect of this, and I don't mean it in an accusatory way, I'm curious, that it was almost like an unattentional benevolent sexism, a kind of attempt to be kind in a way to help them feel safe in the classroom, but actually got in the way of the primary goal. I do think that we have two different things that kick in. One is like, it is this like deep desire to um, be helpful and, and, and honestly, because we understand your context and we get that your context has been unfair. And so we kind of want to put a cocoon there, but the cocoon doesn't help anyone in the long run. It goes back to your parenting. Like we need, we have to set the conditions for you to thrive, which is I, I don't want to lessen up on that devotion at all. And I need to benefit you with cold calls. I need to benefit you with, be, with the rigorous follow-up uh, questions as well. The journey I see a lot of people take, sorry, the journey I see a lot of people take is they start in severity and they get feedback that they're too severe and then they go down to this deep devotion and low snap, and then they get sad and they just go back and forth and back and forth. And so what we're trying to do is help them get to both. And we do think the greatest act of love is to set the conditions for someone else to thrive. So as you were talking about the feedback, there was a section of a book where you wrote about what the real ratio is for yeah. constructive feedback. And it's not, pardon my French, what we call the shit sandwich. No, that's it like was, so wrong. And it's so wrong. Tell me about the five yeah. to one ratio. And honestly, if people that are listening to this, if they only take this out of it, I'd be super satisfied, um, which is that the purpose of feedback is to help someone else improve full stop. So the way I know I have given you good feedback or I've given you effective feedback is if you got better. So we can immediately tell if our feedback is effective by watching someone else improve. The first thing is I want to take responsibility for my feedback accelerating your improvement. What we have seen empirically is that if I give you positive reinforcement, so you do a hundred things in a day, but I tell you at the end of the day, the 10 that really made a difference. You know to double down on those 10 tomorrow more than you did today. So you're automatically going to be better. So I have to give you, but it has to be specific enough positive reinforcement so you know which activities to follow up on. That's by far the most valuable tool I have. There is also something to be used much less frequently, which is 
here's something that if you do it differently, you can get better. Constructive advice. The ratio of five to one is that five positive reinforcement to one constructive advice. Okay. But the problem is the world is walking around thinking that it's the opposite. <laughs> yes. And, and don't and you feel, feel great because I just unloaded a whole lot of negativity on you. And we almost feel like noble. Oh, I really didn't want to do it, but this is my job. Not only is it not noble and it's not your job, but you're not helping people improve. So just stop it. So really, you want to be noble. Help people see what they're doing well. Very yes. specifically, regularly. Yes. And then with pacing and patience, give them the one thing that they can do better after yes. you've given them at least five things that they do well. Because if, if, I do, if you're not giving me the positive reinforcement, I don't believe you're really seeing me. So why on earth would I take the constructive advice from you? Well, Francis, I've got to tell you, what I'm learning from you is just amazing. So one of the places where you've had a real success story of really creating organizational change was um, not just at Uber, that storied case, um, but really close to home at Harvard. And one of the things that was amazing about it was that it all happened in one year. Could you walk us through a little bit of that story and starting with how the problem was identified and kicked into action? Yeah, and I will say that um, meaningful change typically happens very quickly. So it's not that uh, Uber had the same timeline as Harvard, and I find that most change, if you haven't made significant progress within a year, you're probably using the wrong playbook. So I don't think these are exceptions. I think this is quite common when you're doing it. So the way that it expressed itself was that we found that there was a gap in performance between men and women and between international and domestic students and between lots of groups, but I'll just focus on gender because that was the main part of it. And it expressed itself that men had higher grades than women and men had higher self-reported satisfaction than women. So when Nathan Noria became the Dean and this was 10 years ago, one of his, like his first move, so Drew Faust appoints Nathan Noria, which was not like the other appointments of deans um, demographically. And then the, I think the first person that Nathan Noria appointed was Young Me Moon to be the head of the MBA program, not like the other people that had been the head of the MBA program. Um, I was asked to uh, lead the required curriculum. And so that's where we started with the change. And we, we set out to close the gap between achievement and sentiment, grade point average and satisfaction. And I think everyone that's going on about this kind of change, you should start with the, the numbers so that you know how to claim success when you're done. Right. You can't so, manage what you don't measure. No. And, and also you can't take credit for what you do. Like, I think more importantly, <laughs> like you don't know when you're done. You don't know when to celebrate. So, and it's almost always in the form of a gap this group and that group. So if there are demographic tendencies associated with who thrives and thriving is sentiment and achievement, mm -hmm. then this is what you do. So first is we became aware of the data. The second thing we did is we didn't tell anyone else. This was super important and it takes so much discipline. And the reason we didn't tell anyone else is that we had seen countless times when like a study comes out and it shows, I mean, I just, I remember so viscerally the study that came out and showed sexual harassment on campus. Mm -hmm. And 
for two years, the institution debated what to do because oh people were God. like, did you ask the questions the right way? Let's get more data and put that in front of academics, but really any institution, they're going to go nuts about the data and the questioning and was it. So don't tell anyone about the data just for now with your small team pilot until you have a super awesome way forward. So get a successful pilot and then share the data and the pilot and then let the community go nuts because once there's a successful pilot people are not going to go and interrogate the data as being wrong so the holding back um it could be perceived as image protection but it's not it's really it sounds like it's really a way to make sure that when you share the problem you're leading your community into a useful solution and not getting distracted well we can do it the way I just said in less than a year, and I think it takes about two years for an organization to digest the data and its implications. So it's the way to get to results faster. And I find those gaps to be like really bad from a, humanit from a humanitarian <laughs> perspective. And I want to get nobly to the other side as quickly as possible. And the other side is like we came up with a way to do it, but then I want to unleash the community on varied ways to do it even better than we did. So I think it's really important that we get there quickly and we know how groups behave and groups digest data without results in a vacuum for like two years. So I just want to skip that step. I can't blame you. I wish some organizations I've seen in the past had skipped it too. Again, another great checklist of how do you know if an organization is stalling. And when I read that though, it didn't just take that there's that understandable dynamic that happens with, particularly with scholars who are curious and want to test the data, but that in the presence of a giant problem, there are emotional reactions that people will have that also need to be managed so that they don't get in the way of solving the problem. Yes. Um, that often, whether it's confronting sexism or racism, racism there's this um, too frequent cry of, is there really a problem here? Well, that's why I like the gaps in performance or the gaps in representation, because we have to get the organization to come to terms once and for all that there's a problem, because otherwise, though is it a problem will just rear its head again and again and again. It can come out in the middle of any conversation. In the middle of any, you can be seven eighths of the way through and someone's like, but or do we really have a problem? So, uh, and I, it's not bad people. It's just, this is human nature isn't always great. Like we have to update our instincts. Mm -hmm. So going back to what we were talking about in the first segment, um, you were talking about your own classroom where you realized that you weren't um, in your drive to help students feel like they belonged. You also weren't holding them to high standards. And it was particularly a racial differential in the classroom. <laughs> yeah, I was insidiously lowering the standards. Oh, in, it in just these brings processes, up pain in my heart. But you're doing, you're trying so hard now. I do, I'm, no, I'm over it now, day. but it, I feel bad for the students I taught early days. In, if you look back or you think about how to handle those situations differently. Is part of it having what are really sometimes scary and awkward conversations about race? What could have been a different approach at that time that you could have taken from where you were? Yeah, so, and, and if you don't mind, can, if I can bring it to the present with Black Lives Matter and- Please do. Yeah, so I would love to. So here's a couple of things about that. One is that what we're learning is that racism is not a black person's problem. Gender is not a women's problem. 
So we, so the first thing is that for the, we all need to first take a, a set of glasses with a, we have to all make sure we all see the injustice around us. And that's like inviting everyone to have a new lens on their glasses. And I really, it's really important that we all see first. Mm -hmm. And once we can see, I think then we go into standing, walking and talking, which is we, I'm going to stand with the black community. I'm going to walk with the black. I'm going to talk with the black community. That's phase two. And I think it's important. And I want to get through that as quickly as possible, but we have to go through it. We can't go around it. And then it's to get to justice, which is all of our work to close those gaps for sure along the way. I, as a person, if it's on race, I'm going to be way more comfortable because I'm white. I get all of the privilege in the world. So if I have to shoulder a little discomfort and a little awkwardness and a little fear of getting it wrong, I should just go ahead and shoulder that. <laughs> I so appreciate that perspective. And I want to dive into it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of people who avoid that discomfort, not thinking that they're sparing the discomfort with somebody else. The person, whether it's the black person they're talking to, um, the Latina woman that they're speaking with, that, but it's really, we're nervous about embarrassing ourselves or hurting somebody. I mean, which is also a fundamentally generous concern. How do we embark so that we can open ourselves up and live with that vulnerability and make progress in the dialogue? Beautiful. Two, two points. One is that the first part when we're seeing the injustice, I want us to get educate everything we can learn on a Google search. Let's please learn it. I don't want to <laughs> burden other people with, you know, with the 400 years of race. Like, so that's a part of seeing is that we're, we become educated and that will stop a little bit of the awkwardness. The other part is like our job is to create the conditions for other people to be vulnerable. I don't actually care if leaders are vulnerable. I definitely care that they create the conditions for other people to be vulnerable. So I think it's important for us, like I wanna, it's okay if I'm awkward and if I get it wrong, learning's messy. And you know where I'm awkward sometimes? In solving supply chain problems. I can get like really awkward and then I can fix them, but I can't like hide all of my concerns about the supply chain problems and fix it. Like, all of this happens in the open. So somebody's got to make the first move. And we for too long about race have insisted that black people take the first move. And it's exhausting and it's unfair and we have to like stop it. And I, I am really optimistic that at this moment, look at all the CEOs that are speaking out. Look at everyone who wants to help. I have never seen such a wide, diverse collective. So I'm super optimistic that we're internalizing this message, but this is the part we have to keep on, is that like, I'm, I'm going to ask Black people for their help when, I, when it's needed, but I'm not going to ask them to help me do things that I could do that they don't need to do. Like, I want Black people to tell me where other awesome Black people are, because I might not know. Right. As a way of recruiting talent onto yeah. your team. Yeah. But a thing that I will recommend, as you were saying, go read up, go Google search, by the yeah. way, the 1619 Project by the New York Times. Oh, it's magnificent. Yes. And it actually, the first article I read when it came out now about six or seven months ago, I think, yeah. um, was all about the profound lack of empathy. 
and not to mention making real for us experiences that those of us who are white um, have either not seen, been shielded from, not known to look for, and it's high time that we learned about it to understand. But I want to drill into something else that you're laying out for us that I want to make sure I'm understanding and amplifying if I'm getting it right, which is that as leaders, we mistakenly at times think that we have to always be right and have all the right answers and that we're afraid of not being in front of the people we lead. And then what you're talking about, if you put it on the scale that I might be a little awkward and that prevents me from speaking on the scale of all of the ways a black person or any other underrepresented person at work is vulnerable all day, every day, it feels ludicrous that I would be afraid of being awkward. Yeah, and then I somehow bring like my, I use my perfectionism as a badge of silence somehow. No, I like, it's messy. And I want, when, when you're comfortable, it's time for you to reach your arms out for other people. And when you're not comfortable, you have no obligation for anyone else. And so moving through this journey of, like you said, checking our, our own stuff at the door, doing <laughs> what we can to show up and be ready to take care of other people. But it also means that we reveal our own imperfections and the things we don't know. And I think it is such a myth that the CEO has all the answers. In fact, what I encourage my students to do, which is go find a room where you're the least smart person in the room and then grow out of that room in a year and then go find another room. That's amazing. So go seek out the experience of needing to grow. And once again, the power of a year to close a gap. Yep. Francis, I could have like five hours with you and not be able to get through all the things I want to talk about. One thing I do want to make sure we make time for is we've been talking a lot about being present, being honest, being vulnerable, so that we can make a safe place for the people who work with us and for us to feel safe, loved, cherished, like they really belong. But a second half of your book is about being absent, about how do we go away, yet at the same time have them still feel loved and trusted and, you know, really cherished, but able to do work on their own. Yeah. Talk to me about how we set the stage for absence and then why is it so important from a strategic perspective? Yeah. And if I can do the second part first and then the first part. So if you run an organization, like let's say your organization is Wharton and it includes all the students and all the alumni, there isn't anyone who can be present with all of them at once. No, I've tried. It doesn't work. (laughs) If you're the CEO of Microsoft, there's more than a hundred thousand employees. You might not meet some of the employees ever. Right. And yet Satya Nadella has figured out a way that everyone in the organization, when they're making discretionary decisions, they're guided by Microsoft's strategy or its culture. And those are the only two things that guide discretionary behavior, our understanding of the strategy and how the culture informs how we behave. So I think those are the only two ingredients we have when people are no longer in our presence. So is it that culture is about how we interact with each other to execute on strategy? Or is there also a culture around strategy? Yeah, so I think that um, the way I I think about it is that everywhere, we should all understand our strategy. Like, go talk to anyone who's walking around a Walmart store and then has an awesome Walmart vest on. Ask them the strategy, they'll be able to tell it to you. The strategy is super well understood there. 
everywhere where strategy is silent, culture fills in the gaps. Ah, okay. That's how I would understand it. And so if we've tended to culture, but not strategy, it's not going to know where to go with itself. Yeah. And here's the thing. Go to any board of directors. For sure, they're thinking really hard about the company strategy. And I bet they're not thinking very hard about the culture. And that means they're only doing half their job. And so does that also mean that where there are gaps, um, some of those gaps are actually really useful because they're opportunities for innovation or they're the chance to identify problems and solve them. And if the strategy hasn't covered it, then culture can bring in a way to fill in those gaps. And I, I, I think that um, for the innovation gaps, it's probably strategic. Culture is, you know, do we, like who gets to take up space in the room? The strategy doesn't tell us that, but the culture does. You know, is like after the first person speaks, does the second person agree with them? And does a third person agree with them and you don't disagree until you're the fifth person or do you disagree as the second person? That's what culture tells us. So like culture is everything we think and how it manifests in behavior. So regard, like, so I think that if we were gonna find an opportunity in the market, that's probably a job for strategists. But here's what I'd say, in too many companies, strategy is really well understood by 10 people and it is not at all well understood by the front lines. And that's the same as not having a very effective strategy, like the communication. So we in the book, we talk about strategy. We don't talk about how to develop a new strategy. It's how do you communicate effectively the strategy you have? That's what our job is. The strategy has to be well understood and then culture can fill in the gaps. It's interesting. Um, in accreditation practices in higher ed, and I used to do a lot of that work, there was a period of time where one test put on an organization was, could everybody in the organization recite the mission? And I'm realizing there was a big gap there because it's not just the mission, it's how are you going to implement it and does everyone know that? Yeah, and I don't, and the recite scares me because I don't want people to like judge the words, but yeah, I wanna know like, does everyone in the organization know how we're gonna win? You know where this is really important? In companies where revenue is less than cost. Okay, tell me more. A lot, a lot of tech companies, they have cost is greater than revenue. So already like physics doesn't apply. So how are we gonna win? Um, get a lot of people and make money later? It's a terrible understanding <laughs> of strategy. Right. And so when we need to bring strategy out and, and engage all the power in all the people we have, you know, unleash all that possibility, how do we help the room where it happens? You know, we've taught, like, in, one of the things we've talked about on Women at Work is so much of our lives are spent in the conference room or now the, the group Zoom call. Yeah. The dynamic where we're far away from leadership, we're far away from our customers, but we're in those places where it's our dynamic with each other that's gonna move things forward. How in those rooms can middle managers say, help their teams function and the people on those teams help each other when there is, when these gaps exist? Yeah, so when you walk into the room, the most sad, the more attention you have. So if you're the most interesting person to you that walked into the room, you're gonna have a very hard time leading. <laughs> That's a red you, flag. Right? So, but if you walk into the room thinking, how can I set everyone up for success? And when you hear these comments, be like, oh my gosh, when you combine those comments with that, 
you just collectively got this, like just constantly be thinking about how to set others up for success. When you say I, it should be to take blame. When you say you or we, it's for to reveal credit. So it's all the things that we know on how to set other people up for success. But let me tell you one thing you shouldn't do. Please. Don't bring the golden rule with you into any meeting. Say more. So, so the golden rule is treat others as you'd like to be treated. And it sounds great, but it implies you have a homogeneous team. So and if people are just like you, treat them like you. But I sure hope that people aren't just like you in the room because we, we just, add, you know, we got a lot of inefficiency. And, so, and I want to parse this a little bit. Yeah. Because yes, say please, say thank you, be kind. But if you like an off-color joke, that doesn't apply to everybody in that room. Indeed, I don't want you to treat people as you want to be treated. I want you to have an, a, a phrase that sticks as curious inquiry on how others want to be treated. And then that's how you do it. Don't be self-indulgent about how you want to be treated. It's overrated. Think about you, how others want to be treated. In the book, you talked about, in particular, in group dynamics, that question of um, when what we gain and lose when we have a shared space of understanding and experience. Can you help explain the principle behind it? Yeah, and I think that, so the shared space of understanding, and I don't know if the part you were referring to was to, to with humor or was it? No, about how we can, um, when we are all alike. The... Oh, yeah, 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 be my pleasure. So <laughs> here, sorry. So as a human species, our natural instinct is to find the common ground. And so if I have people that are just like me, I'm gonna look for the common ground and I will get that much. And it's, you know, I have my hands out drawn to a circle. Like it's a, it's a big amount, but it's, it's the bounds are set by everyone. Here's the counterintuitive part. If I bring, if I bring into a team where there is difference among us, where you have some in common with me and some different than me, and I bring in a third person who has some in common and some different. As a human species, like anthropologically, if we watched each other, we would quickly narrow to the common ground. And what's, that's great when we're homogeneous because it's all in common, common right. ground away. And that's a substantial amount of stuff then. It's substantial amount of stuff. But the more diverse the team is, the more difference there is among us, the smaller and smaller the common ground is. So what we have to do is fight our natural instinct to go towards common and instead celebrate difference. We have to convince everyone in the room that the most interesting thing about us is not what we have in common. It's what's different among us. And then that is gonna give us a broader and broader sphere of where we can learn from people's lived experiences, from people's past mistakes, from the robustness. That's where amazing innovation occurs. And so the thing that we're then sharing and cherishing and um, holding up as uh, something we value together isn't the exact same experiences we have and tastes that we have, but it's a mutual interest in one another and the collective mass of what we're learning about and from each other. In fact, I'd take it even another step, Laura, and I'd say we should explicitly celebrate difference. Be, and wanna, how do we do that? Aside yeah. from, because I, I don't want to, I want to parse that word. Because yeah. celebrate, you know, is a, in a, it's a big verb. There are lots of ways to do it. Yeah. In so I'll a give, work context, help make okay. that real. 
So in a work context, the way we typically celebrate sameness, and it's when you say something and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was exactly what I was thinking. You're awesome. I just gave you a Scooby snack, my favorite term. I just gave you a <laughs> Scooby snack for sameness. Instead, I mean, it doesn't have to be instead, but the muscle we have to develop is you say something and it's totally counter to what I used to think. I'm like, oh my gosh, that got me to think so differently. You're awesome. I celebrated difference. I got a Scooby snack for being different and, and expanding your universe. Yes. And that's, and then you're going to want to bring your unique perspectives in more and more. Whereas if you get Scooby snack for being the same, you're going to want to bring in fewer and fewer of your breadth. That's and if we happen to see grammar. our teams doing it, um, one of the things we could then talk about afterwards is how great it was to see our team members celebrate those differences as one of the five things we're going to give them to celebrate <laughs> yes, the great work they're doing. That's exactly right. And I would say, and I would use that celebration by, we got to a decision that was of so much higher quality, so much faster than we usually do. And you know why? Because you two are celebrating each other's difference. That was so beautifully put. Like almost everything else that you've shared with us today, Francis. So there's so much in the book to dive into. Um, I'm sure people are going to want to, and, and even if they don't realize it yet, I'm telling you folks, you want to read this, you want to learn more about this. Um, it already changed how I worked with my staff today. So Francis, where can people find the book and find out more about the work behind it and what you do? Yeah, so you can, so the book is sold wherever your favorite bookstore is. We have a website called theleadersguide.com. So, and that's where we put together all of our thoughts about the book. Then also I started on social media in January. So I've, it's my first social platform ever. I think I'm the last dinosaur <laughs> and I like LinkedIn. And so it's the only one I'm on. And it's because I don't get any spam and it's a chance to share brief thoughts and then to get people's response. So if you want to connect with me, send me a direct message on LinkedIn. I get no spam and I've responded to everyone and I will be delighted to respond to you there. If you send me email, it's going to take a very long time for it to get to me. <laughs> That's fair and reasonable. And also a shout out to Ann Morris, your partner and co-author. Oh my gosh. So Ann Morris, who she is on other social media platforms as well. If you find that the words in the book are beautiful, and I find they are beautiful. I do too. Um, Anne's first publication was on the side of a Starbucks cup. And she won a contest that when they used to have a contest where it, and it talks about, uh, it's just a beautiful words there. So if you like read the, the side of the Starbucks, just Google her and you'll see it. And then open the book to any page and point your finger. And I bet it's in, it's in the midst of a beautiful sentence. And those words are like so magnificently crafted by Anne Morris. I like go out and test them and I edit them, but the beauty of the words comes from Anne. And well, Francis, I guess the other thing I'd say is marry up. <laughs> well, Francis, your words were also beautiful, inspiring and useful. I can't thank you enough for making time to help us today. Help us all learn and hopefully do better when we go out there to unleash other people. So thank you. And thank you for having this podcast. It's like really important work.
I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXMBusiness and me at Laura Zarrow. I'd also like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, my at-home tech support of Jeff Greenfield and Ellie Zarrow. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, people, and unleash each other. And we'll shine, yes, we'll shine, we will shine, we will shine, we are For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.